Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There's a wonderful world where all you desire And everything you've longed for is at your fingertips Where the bittersweet taste of life is at your lips Where aisles and aisles of dreams await you And the cool promise of ecstasy fills the air at the end of each working day, she's waiting there. I'm in love with the queen of the supermarket as the evening sky turns blue. Who among us have not temporarily experienced feelings for the queen of the supermarket? Who among us? <laughs> I don't even really mean by what well, I don't don't even know what I mean by proposing that question. Today we're going to talk. Not so much about the queen of the supermarket. We're going to talk about the fate of cashiers, the fate of the self-check systems, which uh, came into prominence in the 1980s and are perhaps going through their own existential crisis right now. Uh, We're going to do that with a number of different experts. But here at the beginning of the show, uh, we are going to uh, talk to somebody who lives with these questions on a pretty regular basis. That would be Stu Leonard Jr., the president and CEO of Stu Leonard's, a regional supermarket chain headquartered here in Connecticut, also with Christopher. Andrews, associate professor and chair of sociology at Drew University, and he wrote the book. I mean, he literally wrote the book, The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkouts, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. So they're both here right now. Um, Stu Leonard uh, Jr., uh, I don't know if you remember this because it was 30-something years ago, but we did did spend a day uh, in the original Stu Leonard's location uh, seeing all kinds of different things. And so I guess, you know, I remember that day so well. And one of the things that I remember is that it was so important to you and to the company itself that interactions with the staff be uh, fruitful and pleasant and that the staff be in a good mood. You ran your you were you specifically were in charge, I think, at that time uh, of the staff newsletter, which was all about building morale so that happy people would interact, interact happily with the public. So I'm guessing the day that Stu Leonard's thought about maybe starting up with self-checkout was a sort of weird day for you because it's so much the opposite of what Stu Leonard's has always kind of sold. Well, first of all, how are you doing today, Colin? Happy holidays to everybody. Um, you, you know, the, it's interesting because one of the things we stand for is listening to our customers, you know, and you know, we, we our management's on the floor. 80% of our managers have been hired from within. And they're used to sort of rubbing shoulders uh, with, with customers in the store. We find about 25% of our customers welcome self-checkout, okay? Mm. Um, they want to do it themselves. They don't want to wait in line, any line at all. They can zoom in and zoom out. And the big thing, and it was especially important during covid is they could bag their own groceries. Mm-hmm. So they put the eggs with the bread and they don't put, you know, melons in there or anything <laughs> like that. So 
um, the customers like it. Now, there is a, another side to it, you know, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little while. But, you know, we're, we're pleasing uh, a segment of our customers that are looking for uh, self-checkout. And so, uh, Christopher, the number that he just gave, 25%, is pretty much in the ballpark, and it's in the ballpark in terms of pandemic and post-pandemic usage uh, of self-checkout, right? There was uh, 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 an obvious, for all the reasons that Stu is suggesting right now, kind of a boomlet of interest in self-checkout. But, uh, Christopher Andrews, tell us more about that. Well, I think we saw an increase in the use of self-checkout during the pandemic for precisely the reasons uh, that Stu just mentioned, uh, the ability of customers to minimize uh, interactions uh, with cashiers and other store staff. Uh, however, self-checkouts weren't designed for <clears throat> larger uh, purchases. Uh, so one of the unintended consequences was in some stores observe uh, longer wait times because people were trying to self-checkout entire carts worth of goods. Uh, through the self-checkout area. Yeah, I'd love to have you both respond to that. But, uh, Christopher, I'll stay with you for just a second. Um, there's a way in which uh, you, once you hit a certain number of items, you know, as you say, a really, really large purchase that's, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars and a lot of different items. First of all, the kiosks themselves aren't almost physically set up to handle that. And some stores have the kiosk talking to you about some weight limit you're exceeding as you put stuff uh, onto the bagging area. But I think also... My sense would be that a really good checkout person can get through that order, with all, particularly with all those PLU codes and stuff like that, maybe faster than I can. Uh, that's right. Uh, several uh, small anecdotal experiments have found that uh, when you control for the length of the line and the number of items, uh, you actually get through the uh, checkout faster when you use a human cashier rather than a self-checkout lane. And part of that is precisely because Cashiers are often more familiar with where the UPC codes are on the packaging. They have the codes for produce and fruit memorized. Uh, but it feels, self-checkout lanes feel like they're faster because we're kept busy. We're doing things. Uh, so time seems to go by slower when we're waiting. But when we're actively scanning and bagging and entering items, it feels faster. Yeah, Stu, my guess is that, that that's your perception, too, that, or that, in fact, how the customer perceives what's happening may be more important than how fast or slow anything is. And so 25% of your customers want that control. They want that sense that they can decide how fast things happen and they can be doing stuff to get themselves out of the store. But, Stu, it also seems like 75% of your customers want to go to the cashier, go through the line the, the old-fashioned way. Well, you know, it's funny. Some people do both. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I talk to a lot of customers in the store when they just got to run in and pick up, you know, like Christopher said, which is a good point. Uh, the problem with self-checkout is is when people pull up with a two shopping carts full of food, you know, and it does clog the whole system up there. But a cashier could do that much quicker. Um, so, and I know limiting the number of items, that's something we're looking forward to. I talked to Brian Cornell at Target and, and I, he told me they were limiting the number of items to under 15. Um, but you know, Christopher, I, I think it's interesting and I know you've studied self-checkout. I'd love to look at your book one day, but, um, the, the, um, the thing that we're finding is first of all, very few people with gray hair are in the self-checkout lane. 
Uh, my kids, and I equate this to an ATM. The ATM came out, I remember it was back around 1970 or so. No, they were breaking all the time. There was all sorts of uh, uh, problems. People would rather go in and, and to, the, to the teller at the, at the, at the uh, bank. Uh, today, the technology has increased so much. They sort of became accepted around the mid-80s. And today, everybody's using an ATM. My daughters, which are all in roughly around their 30s, um, they've never been inside a branch bank to, to handle a check. What, what are checks today? It's all electronic. So the ATM technology has been improving and also, these younger people now that are coming along are just used to, um, you know, ATMs and also self-checkout. Yeah, I mean, uh, Christopher, there's obviously an age disparity here. Uh, people from my generation, I'm in my late 60s, uh, are, are less likely to be comfortable with that, more more want to rely on, on the cashier. But then well, you're old, Colin. You're I am, old. You're too, in your late I, 60s. I am so. old. I am old, yes. Um I am too. I know. I remember. I met you in the 1980s, so yeah. I know how old you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Christopher, what about that? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge anyway that there there is sort of a, an age cohort thing that goes on here. And I mean, I'm very comfortable doing self checkout, and I kind of like it because I'm one of those weirdos who wants to bag my own groceries a certain way. But um, there, Christopher, I assume there you're is kind weird. of weird. <laughs> That's not a weirdo. You're, you're not a weirdo to do that. Everybody wants to do that. Yeah, no, allow me to dwell in my own weirdness. So, because that's one of our complaints, actually, at, at with our cashiers, probably one of the main ones, is the cashier did not bag my groceries right because they're only 16, 17, 18 years old, you know. Yeah. Um, so we have to do a lot of training to get them to bag properly. And I think self-checkout lends itself to bagging your own groceries the way you want. Some people like to put them in the bags just so they can put some in their pantry, some in the freezer, some in the refrigerator. Yeah, yeah. They have their own way of bagging. So, Christopher Andrews, let's talk about that. And let's talk about the older person going through self-checkout, because it seems to me the worst of both worlds is you go through self-checkout and you make a little goof, like maybe somehow or other one item rings up twice. And the machine doesn't allow you to undo that purchase, which means that somebody else has to come over. Now you feel like you're inconveniencing that person who's got to swipe a card in order to override and take the... Uh, I, I, the idea that this would free up labor and, and speed things up, It's there's a human factor, uh, right, Christopher Andrews? Uh, that's right. I think uh, originally stores were sold on self-checkout lanes with the premise that uh, they would eliminate some of the labor at the front end of the store in the form of cashiers. And what stores have found is that uh, they haven't eliminated the need for labor. Uh, they still need to staff the front end of the store in the checkout area uh, to assist customers. I found in my research over half of all transactions through the self-checkout lane required assistance, uh, but also perhaps for stores, more importantly, to deter theft, uh, both intentional and unintentional. Yeah, we'll get to theft in just a second. Christopher Andrews, this becomes even a bigger problem, I think, in other environments. I, at the moment that the airlines started doing this, I don't think I've ever gotten through an air, a self a self check a check in, in in airlines without somebody having to come over and deal with some problem that I had. And at a certain point, you do wonder how this can possibly be any better than what they had to begin with. I, I think that's I think there's some truth to that. Um, a lot of the focus on automated technology in retail, in travel, 
in hospitality and fast food has focused on the possibility and the extent to which it's going to displace low-wage, minimum-wage workers. Uh, and what we're seeing so far is that it doesn't eliminate them. It merely frees them up often to do other things, in some cases, assist customers. But there hasn't been very much conversation about the costs of implementing this technology in terms of installing it, operating it, and maintaining it. Right. And then this is expensive. I mean, uh, the number I keep seeing to install a system like this is $125,000. And that's before you even interface that system with your existing uh, computer. And and Christopher, that might, not, might be an out-of-date number. But um, yeah, these, these things don't just appear by magic in your store. You got to buy them and you got to interface them with everything else you've got. Exactly. Uh, in one store that I was studying that was near a uh, planned retirement community, the store actually incurred significant costs because they had to relocate all of the self-checkout lanes. Uh, most stores put them uh, as close as possible to the exits to kind of shorten the entire shopping trip. Uh, but the older customers felt that they were being forced to have to walk further to go through a cashier-operated lane. And when I asked the store manager how much it cost to just move one of these lanes, and he said, moving them costs tens of thousands of dollars. So just that little fiasco in the store ended up costing the store a significant amount of money. Stu, uh, let's go back over to you for a second. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, when I was down there with you in the in 1980s, learning all about the Stu Leonard's miracle, um, so much of it was about your workforce. Some of, so much of it was about having a happy workforce in a very well-staffed store. So does self-checkout have any particular impact on that, and either in terms of how many people you need or what you have them doing? Well, you know, Christopher has a couple good points. I think one of them is that, um, you know, the self-checkout is expensive. There is an economic part of it. And obviously, when you look at investing that much money in technology, you're always looking for a return. You know, and for instance, uh, you know, if we have a dozen, we have 12 self-checkouts, uh, basically, in each one of our seven stores. And and right now, uh you know, it's expensive to do it and you but you do have like two cashiers there to assist customers for twelve lanes. Now I would have to have twelve cashiers normally, you know, for one for each checkout. So so there is a, a little bit of a laving saver savings, but you know, we've deployed our our people into other departments. We haven't let anybody go or anything because of it. But there's a little bit of a savings there. You're paying for it in two ways. One of them is that you're not getting good uh, information because they're ringing up organic bananas. They're not. They're ringing up organic bananas as regular bananas because there's no sticker on the bananas, mm -hmm. and the customer has to decide are they organic or or not organic. And there's a price difference there, so you're not getting. I don't know how if I'm getting the right numbers back. How many pounds of organic bananas I've sold? Mm -hmm. You know, it's wrong. So you're getting wrong information from from the self checkout. The the second thing uh, that's a big thing is that potential of theft. Um, you know, look, I assume I always assume ninety nine point nine nine percent of all the people are honest, and it depends on what market you're in. You know, if you're in a really struggling, uh, uh, rough neighborhood, you're probably going to have more theft at your self checkouts than you would if you're in more like Stu Leonard's is more in the suburbs. You know, I, I don't think most people, you know, we get a couple 
you know, there's some theft rings that come up from New York City, you know, and, and up into the suburbs. But I don't think it's that big of a problem. But it is. I know it's a. I, I know it's existent. I'd be. I, I can't stick my head in the sand. So you're paying for it a little bit on 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 the data part of it, and also on the uh, on on uh, the whole uh, idea that there's theft at the front end. Now, with that, Christopher, they're improving. Like for instance, a lot of the apples that come in. We have all different prices of apples. You know, how do you get people to ring up the right apples? The suppliers have to introduce stickers, you know, the UPC stickers on every single apple, okay? Now, a lot of them fall off in transit and all this stuff. That that we, We're working with a lot of our farmers to, to get our product in. Um, you know, imagine a small family business farm that now asks you to put stickers on every apple that come in, you know? Uh, so, so that's lagging a little bit, uh, the, um, you know, from the supplier side. So those are really three issues that we're dealing with with self-checkout all the time. You know, I hadn't thought about that whole idea of the system giving you the wrong information about who's buying what just because of human error, uh, unintended human error. But that's a really interesting part of this. Um, Christopher Andrews, you want to talk a little bit about this whole issue uh, of shoplifting or, and I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the court. There was one occasion several years ago when I got out to my car and there was there were some pistachios in the cart that I just hadn't noticed. And I didn't walk all the way back. And I just thought, I'll make this up to stop and shop someday. So, I mean, it's not just stop sh- shoplifting, but sometimes if you're kind of distracted and you're trying to make sure you do the whole self-checkout thing, right, you miss an item that you just wouldn't miss if you were putting stuff up on the belt for Jody, the cashier, to ring you out. So, Christopher Andrews, talk a little bit about all that stuff. So, I think you raise a good point uh, that there is, in a sense, a, a typology or different types of theft or loss that occurs through self-checkout lanes. Uh, some of it is due to seemingly well-intentioned persons like ourselves who, for whatever reason, forget to scan something, whether we had a case of soda on the bottom of a cart. Uh, I live in uh, New Jersey, where increasingly we have outlawed uh, the use of plastic bags. So people have become accustomed to bringing their own bags. And so you have to remember to thoroughly look through your bag and you have other bags inside the bag. And it's not entirely uncommon for people to accidentally forget to scan everything. So you have that category of, of theft. Uh, but what Stu alluded to earlier, too, is that you also have, uh, there is uh, organized retail theft. Uh, and a good example is one of the stores I was, I was studying, uh, the managers told me about a case in which uh, they went to the back end of the store and they were going over their inventory. And what they found was that... Uh, hundreds of dollars worth of shrink-wrapped seafood had been deliberately misentered as apples. And so this this group of organized uh, retail shoplifters deliberately uh, misled the system, but the store wasn't really able to figure that out in real time. They were only able to figure it out later. Uh, So the store manager showed me all sorts of tactics that people will use, ranging from changing labels, to just not scanning items. Uh, And this is one reason why stores do have to keep the self-checkout lanes manned because they're not perfect. There's all sorts of ways you can abuse the system. Yeah, and one, I mean, one thing Costco does 
uh, is I should say two things about Costco because and one of them is very relevant to your research, Chris. Uh, one of them is that um, they they have self checkout, but increasingly they've added more people to the self self checkout area. The last three times I've used Costco self checkout, I didn't do anything. There was like a guy who stood there with a scanner and scanned everything, and then I just completed the purchase. But I mean the the advantage derived by the system from Costco was increasingly questionable to me. But they also do make you produce your receipt on the way out, uh, and then they they check it against what's in the cart. Uh, and I, as far as I know, Christopher, they're the only store that does that uh, that I deal with anyway. But that's yet another option. Uh, they're not necessarily the only store. I've seen some stores, including Home Depot, uh, as well as some other uh, area supermarkets, that will occasionally require customers to produce a receipt in order to audit and check for this uh, check for problems. But the problem is that just undermines one of the main premises of the self-checkout lane, which is, you know, a faster, quicker, more convenient shopping trip. If you're having to wait to have your your purchases uh, audited. Uh, The other thing, too, is that some people I interviewed prefer self-checkout lanes in part because they don't want to they don't want to deal with people. They they don't work with objects during the day, like on a factory or an assembly line. They work with people. And so at the end of the day, they like self-checkout lane because they don't have to deal with somebody. They don't have to do more work after work. And when they have to stop and interact with somebody, they say it just feels like it's slowing them down. So, hey, stu- hey, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm just wondering, have you ever looked at how many people use both? Like, I, I meet some customers in the store. They say, you know, when I'm with my kids and I have a big full shopping trip, I go through the, the, the normal to a cashier. But when I just have to run in to get, you know, five or 10 items, uh, I, I like to do self-checkout. So I meet a lot of customers that use both. Have, have you seen what percent that is? Have you noticed that in your research? I wasn't able to determine that precisely, but anecdotally, I have encountered uh, what I would call uh, checkout omnivores, <laughs> including myself, uh-huh. who will occasionally use either method, uh, depending on the circumstances. Yeah. All right. Well, Stu Leonard Jr., I know you have to go. President and CEO of Stu Leonard's, a regional supermarket chain headquartered here in Connecticut. Christopher Andrews is going to stay with us for another segment. Let's grab a break right here. Thanks, Stu. I'll see you again in 30 years. Uh, and Happy holidays. <laughs> 30 years. Hey, happy holidays, everybody. Thanks for having me on, Colin and Christopher. I'm anxious to look at your book. All right. Ho, ho, ho. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We may have become too reliant on Matt Farley of, of late, but uh, we're talking about self-checkout. Uh, we're here with the man who wrote the book, Christopher Andrews, is associate professor and chair of sociology at Drew University, author of The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkouts, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. Before we go back to Chris, uh, let's um, hear some voices from the street, so to speak, that are two interns, uh, Joey Morgan and Letitia Peters. By the way, Joey Morgan is the person who first referred um, the Amanda Mull Atlantic article about all this to our attention and in a way is the person who kind of planted the seed of this whole episode. But uh, here they are, out of the streets, B1, Cat. How do you feel about self-checkouts at the grocery store? I love them and I hate them. One of them, I, I love them when I'm in a hurry. Two, but I also want people to have jobs. Yeah, I hate it. I think it's the worst thing in the world. And uh, AI programs are being overused for wrong reasons. It's the best thing ever invented. Yeah. You don't have to talk to people. I can do it myself. Great. I use it. I find it handy. I hope that people are being honest, but it's what I use all the time. Well, it really depends on how much stuff I got. If I got a little bit of stuff, then I'll, I'll just run through and just you know, use the self chuckle. But if it's more than two or three items, I'm definitely going to the to the line, unless it's a, it's a long line with a, a lot of people with stuff, so I'll take my chance on the self-checkout. Um, I find, at first I didn't like it. I find it super convenient now. Um, I don't like the ones where they weigh your stuff. I find those very cumbersome and um, aggravating. I do use it. I own a grocery store, a little IGA market. So the cost of installing them are huge, and it, I do feel it's gonna cut some people's jobs out, no question about it. When you see six registers or eight registers are being run by just one person, so it's definitely eliminating jobs. I always use self-checkout, but it can be more difficult than it needs to be. So, uh, Chris, let's explore some uh, of the things that we just heard in all that. First of all, it seems to me that this whole question of uh, eliminating jobs comes up a lot. My partner will not use self-checkout because she's... Uh, very wor- worried about the labor force and, and people losing jobs. On the other hand, we're in a labor shortage right now, and I would assume that this whole question acquires maybe a different valence uh, than it has uh, th- than it does when there are people looking for jobs. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, when I was interviewing store managers, they some of them were incredulous that I assumed that they were being used to eliminate uh, cashiers because. They describe themselves as being in a constant state of hiring and training. Uh, the cashier occupation is one of the 10 largest occupations in the United States, but it also has one of the highest rates of turnover. And when I interviewed store managers of supermarkets, 
they describe difficulty in hiring and retaining uh, teens, young adults uh, willing to start out for near minimum wage uh, positions because they were competing with other businesses that could offer things like discounts on clothing and retail clothing stores or free food from fast food stores. Uh, now, ironically, while labor savings was one of the marketing points of this technology, uh, there's more cashiers today than there were before self-checkouts were introduced, uh, in part because of several of the things that we previously discussed. They're not a perfect technology. Customers need assistance. Uh, we need people on hand to make sure things are entered properly to deter theft. Uh, so part of the reason I think that it hasn't eliminated jobs is because of these imperfections. But I think we also have to acknowledge that the genie hasn't fully been let out of the bottle. Most stores restrict the volume of sales transactions that they want to see going through self-checkout lanes precisely to maintain public perceptions of customer service. Uh, I think if stores were able to more fully implement self-checkout lanes, they could possibly see a reduction in labor. Uh, but so far, no business has been able to successfully uh, operate a completely self-checkout store for uh, a long period of time. Another thing that came up, and we also pulled some of our listeners on social media about this as well, but you hear it a little bit there in the voices from the street, is that sometimes it seems more difficult than it needs to be. And, and I think, you know, they're not all created equal. I find, for example, around here that the stop and shop machines kind of bark at me a little bit more. They're telling me, get remove items from the packing area. Or, or like, I, I find it's not, you know, some people object to be what they think is they're becoming part, an unpaid member of, of the supermarket's workforce. Uh, that doesn't bother me that much. But then I, I don't want this machine bossing me around and telling me I'm not doing things right and telling me to get my ass moving and get that stuff off the uh, platform. There, there's you, One would think anyway that these things could be designed so that they seem a little less judgmental of the customer. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes being told what to do or micromanaged. Um, the technology, the companies tell me they're continually refining it, whether it's the security or uh, the voice commands. Um, but I, I still think that's a good point. Uh, we have to remember that this, these tasks, uh, these are paid jobs. And so what companies are essentially asking us to do is to perform what has typically been a series of paid tasks for free. And the challenge I found was that uh, customers, a significant segment of customers were asking themselves, why should I do this? Mm -hmm. It's not faster. It's not easier. And I'm not getting the food any cheaper. And I think it's a question worth asking. When stores, we, we think of the modern supermarket, uh, was actually pioneered in the early 20th century. And one example of this was Clarence Saunders' Piggly Wiggly store. And the premise was to customers, if you're willing to come in the store and take on more of the tasks that store clerks used to do, we'll offer you a discount on items. Uh, but today, customers, you know, it's a good question. What What's in it for us? Right. Um, let's go back to Piggly Wiggly for a second. First of all, because you're making our producer, Lily Tyson, really happy by bringing it up. But uh, I think she just likes the name. But, you know, it the, the, the thing that you're talking about circa 1916, 1917 is um, in, if you can imagine some of the older movies that you see where, uh, you know, like Music Man or something. I don't know if this really happens in Music Man. But there's 
this whole idea that small small grocery stores or general stores, you would go in and you would walk up to the counter and you would tell somebody what you needed and they would go get all this stuff. The idea that you would walk around getting stuff was revolutionary enough. This is one of the things that Piggly Wiggly did, right? They said, here, take a basket or something, go find something. Right, except they were willing to offer an economic incentive to customers. And I think what consumers today should be asking is, what is our incentive to enter our order into fast food uh, self-entry screens? What is our economic incentive for taking on the work of a baggage handler or a receptionist at a hotel as we perform these tasks? Uh, I think companies see great appeal in this because this is a new frontier of free labor. Uh, but, you know, it's up to consumers as to whether or not that's going to be the future of our economy. See, yeah. I mean, you know, the idea of a DIY economy is right there in the title of your book. And I I find, I mean, no, we're not all the same. And I actually like the feeling that I know what I'm doing, <laughs> even if it's a total illusion. But I even think about the fact that uh, if you recall in the Peanuts comic strip, Snoopy had this huge fantasy life. But one of his fantasies was being a supermarket checkout person. And he would sort of pose like that and pretend he was checking out people's groceries. And, and I sort of get that. Because I, I like looking up the PLU code for the cilantro, you know? It makes, me, <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm, you know, I know what I'm doing. But not everybody feels that way. An awful lot of people want to be taken care of. They don't want to be, to take another part of your title, the overworked consumer. Um, and and um, this sort of leads to the question of where do you see the future of this going? As we were researching this show, we found almost an equal number of articles saying, this is an experiment that failed. It's on its way out. And there's no getting rid of this. Learn to live with it. It's here to stay. How does this whole terrain look to you? Uh, I think first we have to point out uh, what Stu mentioned earlier is that this technology is very expensive. And so many retail stores, many supermarket chains have incredible sunk costs in the form of billions. So they are very reluctant to write this off as a failed experiment. Uh, but in a competitive economy, it's up to us as consumers to decide. And what I think we will see is a splitting or a bifurcation where for those who want super low prices, uh, they'll be asked or expected to start performing some of these tasks in exchange for getting low cost goods. Uh, but for those of us that are willing to spend a little bit more, we'll be able to enjoy uh, personal service, uh, in-person uh, service in stores, uh, albeit for a slightly higher price. That, that is really, really interesting. Uh, and and I, I, the, it rings very true, too, um, that some people are, are going to wind up kind of – I mean, in a way, that's already happening. The, the, the fundamental uh, value proposition of a place like Costco, although I actually think Costco is easier to navigate than we think it is. It just seems so intimidating when you walk into it. But the fundamental value proposition is we're going to do things a little bit differently here. And, and you're going to get things cheaper. I mean, to that point, I don't know what's going on at Stu Leonard's now, but Stu Leonard's, which was a famous supermarket chain in the 1980s, the day I was there, there was a German documentary news crew there making, doing a study of it because they, they did things differently. And one of the things that they did at that time was they said, we're not going to have five different brands of paper towel here. We're going to have two brands. Uh, we're going to get the, it'll probably be like a store brand and then the one we can get the cheapest. Uh, and if that's bounty instead of something else, that's what we'll have. And and you will reap the benefit of that. You will have fewer choices, 
but things will be cheaper. Uh, and it seems like that's kind of what you're saying is that there are all these different value propositions. And if what you value is somebody making your life easier, maybe you can choose that path and, and maybe an entirely different store. That's right. Uh, I like to think of uh, retail and supermarkets as essentially a giant experiment where businesses are experimenting with different business models whether it's Costco, where essentially we as shoppers are navigating a warehouse, effectively cutting out uh, the store itself. Uh, Walmart superstores, the size of airport hangers versus small cashierless Amazon Go stores. Uh, it's up to us. Uh, we get to vote with our pocketbooks. Uh, but as I tell readers in my book, uh, caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware. Uh, so choose wisely. <laughs> Exactly. But speaking of buyer beware, I'll just sort of tell you, uh, the listeners, this just so that they know. Uh, there has been at least one study of the kind of surfaces of these self-checkout areas, and they often do have quite a bit of bacteria on them left by other people uh, dragging their hands across various things and swiping a head of cauliflower five times or something. Um, so wash your hands when you go home. I mean, you should do that anyway, but really wash your hands. The 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 idea that you're avoiding disease by not being face-to-face -face with a checkout person may be a little bit of an illusion as well. So, uh, Christopher Andrews, first of all, I want to thank you so much for doing this show. Christopher Andrews, uh, author of The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkouts, Supermarkets, and The Do-It-Yourself Economy. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Colin. All right. We're going to take a little break here. There's another part of this that we really want to explore here, and it's it's kind of, well, the term we're going to use is kind of weak connections. Uh, there's the kind of relationship we have to people who we meet in the supermarket. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And thanks very much to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today. Lily Tyson, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this particular episode. So, yes, we're going to talk a little bit about um, those interactions that we have in a place like the supermarket. And I'll just quickly tell a story. So in the 90s, I used to go every Sunday morning to stop in a certain stop and shop uh, where I knew the names of all the checkout people. I knew that the manager was a man named Leo Leary. Uh, there were days when things would be really busy and there wouldn't be enough baggers and Leo Leary would come over and he would bag groceries there in his jacket and tie. And I used to suggest that they, they should have a sticker that says, said, I get bagged by, I got bagged by Leo Leary uh, that you could wear on the way out. I knew the day that Jody, one of the cashiers, got promoted to like assistant manager because she said, I don't ring no more. Uh, and I thought at the time that Jody don't ring no more would be like a great Steely Dan song or something, uh, which is all to say that. I didn't really know these people, but I knew a lot of 
names and, and I could chat with them about something uh, for the few seconds that we would interact. And this is one of the things studied by Jillian Sandstrom, senior lecturer in the psychology of kindness at the University of Sussex. Welcome to our conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's talk about this idea of weak ties versus strong ties. Uh, explain what is meant by that. Yeah, I mean, I think strong ties are the are the people who we're really close to and feel comfortable with and feel like we would, um, you know, share our deepest, darkest secrets with, you know, close friends and family members. On the other end of the spectrum, we have strangers, people you've never talked to before. Um, and then in the middle, there's a whole range of people that I refer to as weak ties. So that could be as minimal as someone who you don't even know their name, but you definitely recognize them and they recognize you. So I think that mutual recognition is what makes it different than a complete stranger. But it could also range you know, up to someone that you see every day. Like, let's say when you drop your kids off at school, you see the same parents. And so you kind of know them, but you still really wouldn't, you know, invite them over for dinner or something. The person that you go and order your coffee from uh, at a coffee shop, the barista, or yes. whoever, that's a person who really gets to and know Jody. you. And Jody. And <laughs> Jody. And you, you, you presumably, you know, they know what kind of, how you like your coffee at a certain point, And that's kind of meaningful to us. You actually did a really interesting uh, experiment with your students on this, where they carried around two different kinds of clickers. Ex explain how this worked. Yeah, um, I had people carry around these little tally counters, the kind of things that people use at the movie theater to count how many people are coming through the door. And I asked people to keep track of every single interaction that they had over the course of a day for, for multiple days. Um, and so they had two different ones because I wanted them to use one to count their interactions with strong ties and another one to count their interactions with weak ties. And what we found is two things that sound the same but are slightly different, uh, which is that people who on average had more interactions with weak ties. So if you tend to have more interactions than your producer Lily does, um, then you tend to be a little bit happier. Um, but also, regardless of how many you usually have, um, on days when you have more interactions with weak ties, you tend to be a little happier. And, and I mean, that's really interesting and I think kind of significant and perhaps significant also uh, to this conversation anyway is the fact that you and I and Lily are all introverts. Um, and as an introvert, I actually find those weak tie interactions way easier to deal with. I know oh, how to yeah. I know how to tell <laughs> to tell a little joke or get a smile out of somebody or but it's, it's it, it doesn't take the kind of psychic energy that a strong tie connection does, but I can tell you have more to say about that. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think strong, I mean, and this is not to say that strong ties are not great. We need them. We want them. Um, but yeah, they they come with baggage too, right? Like we have to, you know, we have to, we want to, we want to be there for people when they're there for us. Um, we put up with, they have to put up with all our negative stuff, but then they, you know, they remind us of it. Um, so yeah, in some ways it's much easier to interact with a weak tie. We, it feels like we have more control too. It's okay to just sort of walk away at the end and, you know, the expectations are kind of low, but then surprisingly, often people actually will share quite intimate things with weak ties because they're more objective um, you know, if it's something serious, like, you know, a health diagnosis or something, sometimes it's easier to talk to a weak tie because you don't have to manage their feelings as well as your own. So, so there are some lots of advantages to, to interactions with weak ties. I'm wondering also how this projects out onto uh, your, your principal area of study, the thing that's right there in your title, that the whole idea uh, of kindness. What's the connection between what we've been, we've been talking about so far and kindness? Well, I think any kind of interaction where you're showing someone that you see them as a fellow human, 
is it's an act of kindness. <laughs> you know, there's there's research showing that just making eye contact with someone makes them feel more connected. I think it comes back to just just feeling seen. Um, and I was part of a giant study. Uh, the University of Sussex teamed up with uh, BBC Radio 4 in the UK. And we did this huge public science project called the Kindness Test. And we had 60,000 people, mostly in the UK, but around the world, answering questions about the last act of kindness that someone had done for them. And a lot of times it was from a strong tie, um, but about 10% of the time it was from a stranger, um, you know, higher than that a number came from weak ties. And people were telling us that, you know, the, the examples of those acts of kindness were things like, you know, someone smiled at me or someone gave me a compliment or someone stopped to have a little chat with me. And people are telling us that they see those things as an act of kindness. Does this change your own behavior at all? All of the actually, let's back up before you answer that question. Uh, um, this is just going to reinforce a point that we've kind of already made. But I also love the thing I was talking about: how you order your coffee and who you deal with there. You you actually did a study with us that involved a Starbucks gift card, I believe. Explain that one. Yeah, well, I. I I got interested in weak ties and I thought one of the classic examples was the person at the coffee shop who knows your name and knows your order and you walk in and they greet you and, you know, but I couldn't quite figure out how to study exactly that. And so what I ended up studying was interaction with a, with a barista that you'd never met before. Um, so I recruited people like literally on the sidewalk outside of Starbucks and I gave them a gift card to spend um, and the only catch was that they had to follow some instructions when they went in to make their purchase. So some people, I said, I want you to be as efficient as possible. So have your money ready and avoid unnecessary conversation. I mean, you have to talk a little bit, right? Um, other people, I said, try to turn this into a genuine, like an opportunity for a genuine social interaction. So smile, make eye contact, have a little chat. And lots of people said, you know, Jillian, I do that all the time anyway. <laughs> I said, great, just try and amp it up a bit. So people went in, they followed their instructions, they came out of the store with their free coffee, um, and then I asked them a few questions. And what we found was that people were in a better mood when they had a chat, you know, when they had this social interaction and they felt more connected to other people. So I think there are also instances, well, I'm even looking at a comment that we got from one of our listeners talking about how, you know, just some disgruntled bumbling uh, in a checkout line isn't really the kind of social currency that helps him out at all. But he does like to shop at places where you actually start to know the workers, uh, but he feels as though this society is increasingly tilted more towards the, the less personal, the bigger store, the more people. I don't know if I entirely agree with that. And I do think that... For example, <laughs> at the Whole Foods where I shop, um, uh, there are two cashiers. Neither one of them is working there anymore. There have been two cashiers, or one of them is no longer ringing anyway, as Jody would say, uh, who I would like wait in a slightly longer line just you know, so I could talk to Nancy Taylor because it was just very Same. pleasant to go through. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and so, and, and I'll just tell you another really quick story, which is there used to be a toll booth on a bridge here called the Putnam Bridge. And it had two lanes. And there was a man named Mr. Foster who was one of the toll takers. And you could tell which booth Mr. Foster was in because the, the lane would be way fuller. I don't know how oh, people. I don't know awesome. how people knew. And, and all he, all he could do was take a quarter from you and just beam at you and say, "Have a very nice day" or something. But there are people who have some kind of gift for that, right? Some kind of gift for making that weak tie, very short interaction, something kind of exalted if they do it the right way. Yeah, and I, th I think. I think it's a, it's one. I think people who do that they they do have some skill. I think we can all develop that skill, even introverts like us. Um, but I think you know, Mr. Foster probably both enjoys 
brightening other people's days. I'm sure that's part of it, but I'm sure he feels good as a result too. And and that's the beautiful thing about this is that it, it really is a win-win. So, I mean, underlying our conversation is the mechanized hum of a future world. The, the, um, it's not just self-checkout. I mean, ultimately, as many things as can be automated will attempt to be automated. And, and I wonder about that too, whether um, you think that, I mean, I'm sure there will be efforts uh, to get AI to simulate the kind of thing that we're talking about, to be a little bit closer to the sort of weak tie social exchange that somebody might enjoy and seek out. Although I, I wonder if we're really also talking about an aspect of our core humanity that can't be simulated. Yeah, I mean, I think we could probably... So, I hadn't thought about that before, um, but but as you were saying it, I you know I think you could definitely AI could could remember who you are and say you know hi how is your day and you know greet you by name and that kind of thing and it'd be hard I think because of how we're kind of wired as humans we're we're just naturally social I think it would be hard for that not to feel good to some extent so I think there would be some benefits. But I think one of for me one of the joys of talking to random people is it's it's novel like it's a, it's a hit of novelty in your day you don't know what's going to happen and you know i've learned all sorts of interesting things from people i've heard stories people share things that you never could have predicted um and i don't know how you would program that kind of randomness in into an ai right because it's a two-way randomness you say something yeah. something to jody that she doesn't expect you to say and then jody says something back to you this is stuff that just it you know, has I, I mean i hope that you and i are both right about this because I think there is some real value to, to keeping it human. Um, this is fascinating stuff. I want to thank you for your time. Jillian Sandstrom, uh, a senior lecturer in the psychology of kindness uh, at the University of Sussex. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. I, I should say something really special that makes your day up, but I can't really think. You were a wonderful, wonderful guest. I hope you have a great day. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have to go. Thanks very much to everybody, especially Kat and Lily. If you want to clip your earlobes, you may want to dye your hangnails, have a little on your husband's face. Won't he be surprised? I would like an eyebrow under my chin. There's an idea. Madam, I am filled with fairy sauce. So that should do me. Wrap it up and charge it. Thank you so much. Always such a pleasure. See